Hello, friends. This is Michael Carey, and welcome to the Living Truth Podcast. Our guest for today's show is Nate Larkin. Nate is the author of two books, Samson and the Pirate Monks and Beyond Accountability. And he is the founder of the Samson Society, which is a fellowship of Christian men who are serious about authenticity, community, humility, and recovery. You can purchase a copy of Nate's books on Amazon. And for more information about Samson Society, you can head over to samsonsociety.com. Nate Larkin, welcome to the podcast, man. It's really great to have you on our show. Thank you, Michael. It's a joy to be with you. It's, a, mm-hmm. it's an honor. Um, for our listeners that um, maybe aren't familiar with your story, I would love it if you'd just be able to tell some of your story. Sure, sure. Well, uh, I'm the product of a Christian home, uh, a high-performing Christian home. My dad was a pastor, so I'm the oldest of 10 kids, uh, and uh, raised in the holiness tradition of the Christian church. So we were really serious about our faith, and I still am today. But um, but a strong legalistic strain, uh, a big part of our understanding of the Christian life was that uh, one of the, the Holy Spirit, when we're imbued with the Holy Spirit, we are given the power to overcome sin. And so uh, the victorious Christian life becomes not only a possibility, but an expectation. Christian perfection really is what we're striving for. Mm-hmm. Um, and that fit well with my determination to excel, uh, which worked real well right up until puberty. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, uh, and then I began to experience some urges and began to experiment with some behaviors that really were not consonant with a Christian witness. And, uh, you know, and so then just began to deal with, you know, began this cycle of trying to, uh, suppress and channel and, uh, you know, discipline my sexuality, lots of guilt, uh, lots of shame, and really tried to manage my uh, behavior with guilt and shame. Uh, I thought that I could shame my way out of bad behavior. That, by the way, was, you know, one of the major tools that was used for behavior modification in the tradition I was raised in was uh, was shame. I thought maybe that if I could hate my sin or hate myself enough, I could stop, but I could never hit the bottom. Mm. And so uh, porn use for me accelerated. You know, in the beginning, it was, you know, the glossy men's magazines that you could buy at the cor- uh, corner drugstore. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a problem that I thought would be solved by marriage. I was greatly disappointed, even though I married a fabulous woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even though, you know, legitimate sexual experience was now available to me, turns out, uh, I, you know, that behavior was driven by a lot of deep motivation and a lot of, of hurt and trauma that I didn't understand at the time. And the problem did not disappear. It really metastasized. And it was actually during our, our years in seminary that I graduated while on a seminary sponsored trip to New York City from softcore porn to hardcore porn. That's when I got my first look at the kind of stuff that's readily available now to any unsupervised 10-year-old on the internet. Mm. Uh, And that really, really 
hooked me deep. Uh, a few years later, during a period of, you know, white knuckled abstinence, which I mistook for <laughs> sobriety, uh, <laughs> I found the courage to start a church in South Florida, uh, only to have the, the behavior return. Uh, but I always kept it very successfully kept it a secret, was really good at denial and uh, misdirection, was a friendly guy who at the same time was careful not to let anybody too close. There was a lot of performing in order to keep up that image uh, for myself and for other people of the successful and highly motivated and very sincere uh, Christian guy who certainly never would even think of crossing the lines of sexual behavior. Uh, but, um, you know, hardcore pornography led to, you know, strip clubs and then, uh, you know, uh, and eventually to prostitutes, uh, which was just awful, just tortured my conscience. Uh, I hated the behavior and yet couldn't stop it. Mm -hmm. And finally, in despair, after a few years, I quit the ministry. Um, because at that point I knew I was either going to have to quit the behavior or quit the ministry. And there was only one thing I could quit. So at the age of 30, I retired from ministry. I now had a wife and three kids, um, it, it went into business where I had the misfortune to succeed. Uh, so now, uh, my addiction had more money to play mm. with, with even less accountability. Mm. which led to, you know, even darker uh, behavior in a really dark dozen years that left me numb and in my, and my wife really in clinical depression. Mm -hmm. So 22 years ago now, we moved from South Florida at the invitation of our oldest son and his wife, uh, came to Middle Tennessee. It was here that Allie caught me uh, downloading porn one night mm -hmm. after we started running out of money and I had reached for the only fear medication I'd ever used. Uh, and that was the catalyst. It was, it was, you know, Allie looking at me and saying, I'm done. Um, I still love you, but I don't like you. I don't trust you. I don't respect you. And I don't think you can ever change. It was those words from the only real friend I had um, at a desperate bid to save my marriage that I did something I'd never done before and actually went for help without speaking in code and actually let somebody know what was going on. And for me, that help, I found that help not uh, from the church and not uh, and not upstairs in the church, from the church staff or from the good people, the well-behaved people. I found help in the basement of the church uh, in the middle of the week from, uh, you know, a bunch of recovering addicts. It was a 12-step group where I finally found an environment that was safe enough for me to bring my real self and start to face the real truth. And it was there that I got uh, more than preaching, more than teaching, uh, more than exhortation, I got coaching, I got help. And more than that, um, I encountered radical acceptance, uh, deep empathy. Mm. Uh, and uh, it was an experience that 
really opened doors and windows on the gospel that I had never seen. Revolution, revolution I really rescued my spiritual life. I had become by that point for all practical purposes, I think, uh, not an atheist, but really a practical agnostic. My faith had lost. I'd lost any hope because I'd been screaming at God for so long for some relief and hadn't gotten the relief I wanted. I hadn't. He hadn't delivered the private solution to my private problem that I wanted. Right. Mm. Uh, God. God was working an entirely different agenda. Yeah. I didn't realize it at the time. But uh, so it was there in relationship with other people and with other Christian people. Uh, that I, you know, encountered God in a new way, encountered the gospel. Really, I think for the first time, uh, this unfiltered message that um, God is under no illusions about my, you know, moral state and has no unrealistic expectations of me, but has done everything for me that needs to be done. Right. Uh, and wants only for me to trust him and to trust his love and that, uh, you know, just get off this desperate quest for moral self-sufficiency and allow somebody to be my savior mm-hmm. and allow somebody else to be my healer and join the human race. Stop trying to be, uh, you know, better than anybody else. Give up my illusions of moral superiority, mm. uh, walk away from my pride and accept life as what life is. Uh, take a look at my shadow. Mm-hmm. Now, that's made it possible for me to have real relationships with people, to bring my real self into friendship, which has led to deep connection that I was never capable of before. Mm. Uh, miraculously my wife stayed with me our marriage has survived and it's you know richer than it ever was during my years of active addiction and we're not alone anymore i've got plenty of friends and uh, you know kingdom life is uh far better than what i was trying to manufacture under my own religious steam so there you go Mm. wow wow yeah, thanks so much for that. It's um, very, uh, very vulnerable and and uh, humbling story for sure, and uh, so many parallels to my story that I that I hear. And um, yeah, this is a, a quote from your book uh, when you were talking about um, the sexual encounters. You said this, that the actual sexual encounters were squalid, humiliating affairs. After each one, I felt so used and rotten that I wanted to die. On my way home, I often screamed at God, banging on the steering wheel and begging him to relieve me of this terrible wickedness, to take the urge away. But the heavens were silent. Yeah. Yeah. That, um, and that sounds so familiar. And that, uh, yeah, screaming at God, begging him to take it away. And that's just not the way it works, is it? No, 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 no. Mm-hmm. No, you know, I, I thought that I wanted sexual integrity. Uh, uh, but what I really wanted was I wanted moral self-sufficiency. I wanted uh, to be... I wanted to be able to keep all the rules perfectly and to do it all by myself without involving anybody else Uh, and without revealing my need to anybody else. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, now I'm grateful that God didn't answer that prayer. I mean, he could have. God could have taken the urge away. He could have delivered me from that addiction. Mm-hmm. I'm so grateful he didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, because I would have become, I think, more of an insufferable pain in the neck. Uh, I would become even more proud. Uh, it would have, it, I then would have looked down my nose at anybody who didn't have enough faith to get that much, that deliverance that I'd received or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And what I really needed was I needed some uh, I needed a measure of humility, a, a more realistic understanding of myself and my place in the world. Um, and so I had to give up my unrealistic expectations mm-hmm. and accept, you know, accept forgiveness and accept help and 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 um, and give up the fiction that I even have the potential to be better than anybody else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't. Mm-hmm. The fiction. Yeah. Give up the fiction that we have. Yeah. I, uh, yeah, I like the choice of words and it's so true. Moral self-sufficiency, you know, and you know, it's interesting. I mean, when you, I, I don't know how many times uh, I've read through the scriptures and the gospels, and it's like, that's the message that Christ is talking about is giving that up, you know, not being self-sufficient, but it's like, yeah. we still, we still want it. We still reach for it and ask for it and expect it, that that's the way that's yeah. supposed to work. And it's yeah. such an illusion. I, uh, it's, it's a, um, uh, yeah, it's 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 crazy that uh, it's like self denial. I think, um, and that's that's kind of what we get stuck in. I think when we just really don't want to give it up, when we're not ready to give it up, but when we're really yeah. ready, that's when we really find the solution. Surrender, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, real surrender. It is. Yeah, yeah. Which which you know feels like dying, uh, and yet you know Jesus said. You know, unless that kernel of wheat falls in the ground, it, it's it's alone. It's alone. Mm-hmm. And I was certainly very alone. I was alone in my ambition. I was alone in my self-hatred and despair. Um, but, you know, if it dies, then it can bring forth fruit. Mm-hmm. And it does. It, feel, it feels like dying to surrender, to give up that fight, to say, I can never, ever, ever win this fight. There is not, uh, I can't figure it out. There isn't a silver bullet somewhere. There isn't some theological uh, concept or some ritual behavior. There isn't some act of self-denial or whatever, Mm -hmm. some superhuman thing that I can do to overcome it. Nope, I'm beaten. I'm done. It's it's, uh, either I allow somebody to rescue me and admit that I need rescuing or I'm toast. That feels like dying and in a way it is, but it's a death that makes possible a whole new way of life. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, in your book, you likened it. I, I love how you put this. When you compare the, uh, the, the death of 
with the false self, the death that you're talking about, to the story of Nicodemus when uh, he's talking about being reborn, or when when Jesus mm-hmm. told him you need to be reborn, and it's yeah, uh, I, I thought, wow, that's exactly what what it feels like, isn't it? That it death, does, yeah, being reborn. That's what we have to go through yeah. through this process, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's so spiritually enriching. You know, we you know we, we look we look at with dread at the prospect of surrendering and getting into recovery from an addiction. I mean, it just seems like I, I remember, you know, just walking into that first twelve step room, thinking, "I'm these are the losers, and I'm joining the losers. I don't want to join the losers. I don't want to be here. I want to be upstairs where the winners are." <laughs> uh, right. <laughs> Oh, I, I, and and upstairs, I belong on the platform. I'm, you know, mm-hmm. oh, it feels like dying. Mm-hmm. That's where the life is. That's where the life is. Yeah. And yeah, so for me, it was very much, it was very much like, you know, I, you know, I accepted Christ, you know, every summer as a kid at, uh, at youth camp and, you know, walked the aisle physically or you know mentally countless times you know week after week getting resaved as a kid uh begging god for a salvation that was already mine because i didn't understand and believe the gospel but i gotta tell you that uh, that recovery for me felt like being born again I, I i don't believe that that was my conversion experience i i, I right. believe that it was in recovery that I've begun really to grasp and experience the truth that was already mine, mm-hmm. but coming to grips with it and tasting it, allowing myself to taste it for the first time. It's the closest thing that I know to uh, the experience of somebody who is converted as an adult, you know, and gets that amazing conversion experience. Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, but it's it's uh, the colors the colors come alive. The world changes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you said uh, you said this in in your book uh, in the Samson and the Pirate Marks book. Um, the uh, you were watching the gospel, I think, from the upper deck. You know, when you were uh, yeah. preparing it to like baseball, <laughs> and yeah. now you feel like you're on the field. You're actually yeah. you're actually doing it. You know, what is that? Yeah. What is that like uh, being in the upper? What What do you mean by being in the upper deck? And like yeah, yeah, like you're an observer of the gospel and what's happening, but you're actually involved now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I did, you know, as a kid, I did feel like a spectator. I loved the game. I loved the Christian faith and the view I had of it from, you know, those altitudes. But but my heroes were those high-performing preachers who could talk in elevated terms about the gospel and about the Christian faith who were doing all these great things. And I wanted to be that person. Uh and it's uh, and and because I had the the fundamental skills that are integral to that role, because I can stand up on my own hind feet and talk, because you know because I can sing, because I you know I'm not afraid of crowds, because uh, uh, I can I can uh, under the right circumstances draw a crowd and keep their attention. Um, I thought that the way to the you know, that somehow when I had that role, 
then, you know, the grandeur of the game, I would experience the grandeur of the game. But to me, even as a pastor, it felt like I was describing something I didn't really know. I'd heard about it. I'd read about it. I was convinced it was real. I could catch glimpses of it from time to time. But uh, now entering through that narrow door, you know, <laughs> of surrender mm. and, uh, uh, you know, giving up entirely the illusion that I could ever perform my way to God's acceptance um, and, and walking in the company of other self-acknowledged sinners on a daily basis, hopeless sinners on a daily basis, and saying, I'm one of them. We are us, right? All of us equally dependent upon the grace of God. We can't look down on anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, now I'm on the field. I'm on the field. And now to see the Power to experience the power of the gospel for change. Because here's the thing. I worked so hard at moral self-improvement during my years in the upper deck and saw almost no progress. Now, having given up the idea that I can make progress on my own and saying, God's got to do for me what I cannot do for myself, Mm-hmm. And it comes just as I acknowledge my need and express it to him and ask him to relieve me of my character defects. Now to see changes that I had tried in vain for years to bring about, to begin to happen, never perfectly, but in ways that my wife could notice. Uh, you know, Allie, Allie will tell you today that she's been married to two different guys. Mm-hmm. with the same name yeah um that's the power of the gospel but it comes when i give up the idea that i can get there by self-propulsion mm-hmm. god's mm-hmm. got to do it it's the indwelling work of a power other than myself yeah right yeah. and that doesn't confer any merit to me Mm-hmm. <laughs> all yeah. of the oh, yeah, all of the merit belongs to God and to and, our yeah. yeah. And this, you know, this isn't something that is uh, specific to sexual sin either. I mean, this right? is this plays out in you know, people who who don't struggle with necessarily sexual sin, but uh, yeah. you know, issues with anger or pride or uh, uh, any other addiction for sure. But uh, any behavior that's contrary to God's will and what uh, it's 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 a part. I think this what you're describing is a part of that that everyone needs to take advantage of, and, and it's a part of becoming the person that God always intended you to become, isn't it? Yeah, and and that's where I think that I I actually am lucky to have a sexual Mm. addiction Mm. because because at least my sin is glaringly obvious. Right. I've got got an advantage over the successful Pharisee. I was an unsuccessful Pharisee, but the Uh. successful Pharisee who is able not to commit adultery. Uh, uh, you know, Jesus looked at that, you know, at the Pharisees of his day and he said, look, you think that because you haven't committed adultery, you haven't sinned. You're, right. <laughs> you're deluded. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Yeah. So, you know, all of us are in the same boat and it's easier for some of us to see it than for others. And, you know, that's one advantage I have as a recovering sex addict. It's if I stand back, eyes wide open and don't lie about and don't allow my denial to shade or redefine or minimize or, you know, in some way, mm-hmm. you know, recolor my behavior. It's pretty doggone obvious mm-hmm. that I'm on my own. I'm screwed, right? <laughs> uh, I really need the gospel. Mm-hmm. And it, it can be tougher for those people who haven't fallen prey to something as obviously sinful as my behavior. But we're mm-hmm. all in the same boat. Yeah. Yeah. Lucky to have a sexual addiction. I mean, in, in this case, uh, I know, and just hearing your story and knowing my story and so many other men yeah. uh, and, and women who struggle with sexual addiction, yeah. the, it's, it is um, the destruction of the relationships around us, how, how it impacts other people that causes us to have to do something about this. We yeah, have yeah. we have to change, or or we lose relationship. And maybe that's not the case with other um, issues that people struggle with that are just not maybe maybe not as severe, more mild, I guess, if you will. Yeah, but, yeah, uh, yeah, or yeah, le- yeah, yeah. Or less destructive, you know. Yeah. And uh, you you mentioned that um, you alluded to it a little bit here uh, just earlier in telling your story uh, in uh, Allie giving you an ultimatum. And I think I've heard you say, correct me if I'm wrong, if this is the right statistic, but I think I've heard you say in the past four out of five men need an ultimatum in order to make that decision to surrender it all. Yeah, and, yeah. That's, and that's what Allie did. You said in your yeah. book, uh, Allie gave you the gift of desperation. <laughs> yeah. How you put it. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful that she did. I'm so grateful that she did. But yeah, um, you know, right now during this COVID pandemic, uh, you know, at Samson Society, we started virtual meetings a couple of years ago. I'm really grateful that we did uh, because now there's a way for guys still to attend Samson meetings. We know what we see. We know. Uh, that porn use within the culture is way up during this time of heightened anxiety and enforced isolation. That's a mm-hmm. perfect storm. Yeah. Uh, but I all, but I, uh, but we're seeing a lot of new guys showing up in the newcomer meetings. And I think part of that, it's not just that porn use is up. I also think that uh, guys who have been addicted to porn, but have been perhaps acting out well at the office or on the road, uh, now are being drawn into that compulsive behavior while they're at home where the odds of getting caught are much greater. Yes. Okay. And, yes. and most of us don't go for help until we get caught. Right. <laughs> yeah. So we're seeing a lot of new guys showing up in meetings and going, Oh man, you know, I don't know if my relationship's going to survive. My girlfriend, my wife is really upset or whatever. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, I now know I got to deal with this. And here's what I know for those guys. What feels like the worst day of your life will, in retrospect, if you respond correctly, turn out to be the one of the best days of your life. Maybe the best day. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Finally, you're going to face the reality of the situation. Go mm-hmm. for help. Get real help and do something about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. 
Yeah. Could you talk more uh, about the Samson Society? Like, um, so you guys started this back in, um, what, what was it in 2000, 2003? 2004, 2004. 2004. Yeah. Yeah. Valentine's, <laughs> Valentine's Day weekend, 2004 was the first meeting of the Samson Society here in Franklin, Tennessee. And it was a, it was a dozen guys. Uh, and, uh, in 2007, we put out the book Samson and the Pirate Monks. The first half of that book is is memoir, my memoir, and the second half is field manual. What we really wanted to do was uh, inspire guys with the idea of collaborative Christian living uh, and maybe inspire them to start their own Samson group or something like it. Uh, some a radical form of authentic brotherhood. And about 500 local groups did start over time. Uh, but a couple of years ago, we really uh, faced the fact that there were a lot of guys. This is a huge problem and growing exponentially. Uh, and there were a lot of guys who were, couldn't, for one reason or another, were not near a local meeting, wouldn't, uh, it was too dangerous to go to a local meeting, wouldn't, you know, whatever. Um, I was initially opposed to the idea of doing online meetings because I know that recovery requ requires relationship. Yeah. And um, I didn't believe that real relationships could form outside of a shared physical space. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, Michael Leahy introduced me to Zoom. Mm -hmm. uh, I sat in my first Zoom meeting, tasted how uh, – the dynamics, relational dynamics were so close to actually being in the same room. Uh, overcame my initial reluctance and we started the Zoom meetings a couple of years ago uh, through the Samson site and, uh, and found ways to connect guys between the meetings with an app mm -hmm. and, and using Slack. And what we found is amazingly deep relationships, very healthy, mutually beneficial uh, uh, helping relationships, enduring relationships have formed often between guys who, you know, have yet to actually had a chance to hug. Mm -hmm. uh, we do an annual retreat in the fall, a big retreat. And to me, the highlight of that retreat is the first day when I get to see guys hug their best friends for the first time. Yeah. Wow. Uh, and uh, so we're seeing now, you know, uh, lives are changing. It works. Uh, our God is not limited by time and space. And the, you know, the very medium that has caused so much damage for so many of us has now become a vehicle of redemption. So, yeah, yeah. absolutely. And we're about to start. It's amazing. It's going global quickly. Uh, our new, uh, our first Italian, uh, Italian speaking meeting, uh, a group has formed. Hmm. so yeah in northern italy we, <laughs> wow. how cool is how cool is that uh <laughs> i'm, I'm going to be meeting with that group tom moke and i'll be meeting with that group tomorrow they're meeting hmm. daily 15 guys wow uh, their samson group in italian wow yeah yeah and in the midst of this covid uh pandemic uh and the, how hard italy has been hit um, yeah what a blessing for them to be able to have this. I could imagine yeah. me meeting daily. Is like, yeah, yeah. 
Wow. That's yeah. uh, interestingly, I mean, that's, I think that's what the early church did anyways. They met. Yeah. 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 Day. I seem to remember that. Yeah. Daily from <laughs> daily from house to house. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't a weekly yeah. thing, but, uh, and that's the thing. I mean, when you, when you're involved in real relationship, you're really connected guys really know you you want to be in that relationship you yeah, want yeah. to have that time right yeah, it's yeah. um i i remember my first counselor telling me you know he said if you want to know uh, how long you have to go to one of these meetings well you have to go until you want to go <laughs> <laughs> that's a good line that's and a I real said, good line yeah so yeah. Yeah. I've been I've been stealing. I mean, I've been using it ever since. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it makes perfect sense. Wow. Yeah, that is uh that's so incredible. Um and yeah, what you what what you just alluded to, um, it's that actually happened in my personal story. I was in a Christian recovery group. Uh I started going to Sex Addicts Anonymous. And uh, I found the guys in that secular 12-step meeting to be more open and honest than yeah. uh, in, in the Christian church. And, and I understand the reason is because of shame, because the Christian guys in that community didn't uh, really want uh, everybody to know what they were yeah. really dealing with. And, right. and, I, and I was one of them. You know, I, I'm not in sure. judgment, but it's just that that's what happened. And so, so even so with, with these different varieties of groups that I went to, there was still something missing and it was the brotherhood that this real deep uh, commonality, this brotherhood where these are my people, you know, and uh, the kind of brotherhood of men that I really needed as part of my own personal growth and my story, uh, the, the, the piece that's always been missing throughout my childhood, throughout my life. And uh, so this, um, I don't remember how I was introduced to Samson and the Pirate Monks in the book, um, but the uh, tagline is, you know, authentic brotherhood. Uh, and that, that grabbed me. I said, yeah. that, that is what I've been looking for. That's what yeah. I need. Yeah. It, uh, that, that led me to um, uh, start to search for that. But I, uh, like you said, um, either, either uh, put together a Samson meeting or something like it. And yeah. I was one of those guys that ended up doing something like it. And it's like, you know. And I've you, met your guys. I've hung with your group. Uh, 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 and you got it going on. You got the real thing. Yeah. 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 It's, uh, it, it's really an incredible journey to see these yeah. guys connect, to see these guys get, get what they need, and um, uh, to have that vulnerable relationship. Something interesting that I that I heard in one of your podcasts uh, that I'd love for you to to touch on when it comes to sexuality. You said this: sex is a wonderful gift, not a fundamental need. Yeah, what you said. What What did you mean yeah. by that? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, that was a that was a hard, that was a very freeing concept that I resisted for a long time, which is one of the reasons why it took me so long to experience true sexual sobriety. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, sex had been a need. I was, it was my f- uh, favorite coping mechanism, a maladaptive coping mechanism. Uh, but for, to me, sex, I had defined sex as a human need, as much of our culture does, by the way. But for me, it was on the level almost of air and water. Uh, it was as 
uh, as important as food or sleep, I would forego food and sleep for sex any day of the week. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, when they told me in SA that sex is optional, I thought they were crazy. Mm. Um, and uh, so I, uh, so I hung on to at least sex with self after I had, uh, you know, stopped acting out with people other than my wife. And since during the early years of, you know, those that or when my wife was still recovering from the trauma of all of my uh, infidelity, you know, we did not have a thriving intimate life ourselves. And so, you know, I was under this illusion that I had to have sexual release or I was going to die. And, and in a way, it was self-fulfilling. I really tortured myself uh, whenever I, uh, you know, tried to control it. And then I remember, you know, a couple of years in, I wound up in a newcomer meeting with a guy who I knew and trusted. He was an old timer. He'd been around a long time. And uh, we did a breakout for a newcomer. And I heard this guy tell his story. And maybe I'd heard it before, but this time I actually heard it. And he talked about coming into the program as a single guy and being single and celibate for eight years mm. uh, and getting emotionally healthy, then meeting the right woman, marrying. The plumbing still worked. I'd been told you got to use it or lose it, right? Uh, <laughs> he's got a healthy marriage. He's got two kids. Life is good. Uh, and I knew that guy and I trusted that guy. And what he was, he was describing for me a reality that was different from the one, it was a lens. He was looking at the world through a lens that was different from the one that I was looking through. And I, I made a decision that day to recategorize sex, to move it out of the category of need into the category of gift. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did that consciously. And I have to tell you, from that point on, I was never tortured again by, uh, you know, physical discomfort or you know, this nagging method uh, because, uh, because I'm not sexually active with, you know, either with myself or with my wife. Right. Um, accepting that it's a gift, but it's not a need. And I can live a fulfilling, joyful, worthwhile life, mm-hmm. fully human, without yeah. being sexually active. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just because you have a desire doesn't mean you have to act on it. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. The desire comes. That, which is not to say, yeah, which is not to say that I am still not subject to waves of sexual desire, but I know that it's sure. a desire and not a need. Yeah. And I'm not going to yeah. suffocate. I'm not going to die. And I, mm-hmm. I, I can torture myself if I want to put that in the category of need, but that's mm-hmm. entirely optional. Yeah. And it, and it, that's exactly it. If you put it in the category of need, it is just like torturing yourself. Isn't oh, it? Sure. Yeah. And I'm going to feel deprived yeah. and I'm, yeah. And I'm some kind of, I, you know, I'm some kind of martyr if I'm, and then I'm going to get resentful toward my wife and I've had all these expectations. That's yeah. all unnecessary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That is so still, true. You know, I still, I still love sex. And by mm-hmm. the way, um, 
experiencing sex now um, as, you know, without it being driven by lust, sex is entirely different and far more rewarding. Yes. Yeah. One of the great tragedies is that I spent so much money and so much time on bad sex for 20 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you know, sex driven by love is entirely different from sex mm-hmm. driven by lust. Yes. So, you know, lust is about taking, love is about giving. You know, lust is about, I don't know, a body. Love is about a person. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, lust is about me. Love is about her. Uh, mm-hmm. And to experience that connection with, uh, without having, without using her, you know, I think at some level, Allie always knew that I was using her and that in my own head, I was in bed with a cast of thousands. Oh, wow. It's not about her. I didn't see her. This is entirely different. And, and I, so I love it. It's wonderful, but I don't need it, mm-hmm. which means that um, we can experience non-sexual intimacy. We can be very close. And Allie isn't threatened by this knowledge that was always there for the first 20 years, that if she ever gave me any encouragement, I was swinging for the fences because there was, to me, intimacy was only sexual intimacy. And even that wasn't intimate. Mm-hmm. Now we have the possibility of connecting in the way that – with an emotional connection that can then even be expressed and deepened with physical intimacy. But physical intimacy uh, that's sexual, as wonderful it is, as it is, is not necessary, which is yeah. a good thing because we're getting older. you know and we went through years my wife you know my wife went through cancer treatment she's been through some surgical stuff uh you know i'm getting older myself Mm -hmm. you know if the only if the only way i can experience intimacy is to have you know sexual intimacy boy i'm i'm putting myself in a pretty bad spot right Mm mm-hmm well, Nate, thank you so much for being on the, on our show. Really appreciate your time, and uh, it's been very rewarding. I know that our listeners are going to benefit greatly from this. 